You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So in Revelation 19, we are literally on the dawn of the kingdom. And as they always say, it is always darkest before the dawn. And the book of Revelation really is where we get that idea from in many ways, because it really does get very dark right before the kingdom breaks forth into this world. If you remember in chapter 16, the Apostle John was shown those final seven bowls that contained the final outpouring of the wrath of God. And then after that final seventh bowl was poured out on the earth, you had those words, it is done. And we always like to make the connection. 2,000 years ago, he said the words, it is finished, as he hung on the cross and died for our sins. And whether you accept those words may indicate what you do with these next three words. It is done. This is the full outpouring of the wrath of God. One of the things that this seventh bowl included was the judgment of what Revelation calls Babylon. We've been dealing with that for the last three or four weeks, I believe. Chapters 17 and 18 deal with that famous character in the book of Revelation called the great harlot Babylon. We unpacked that a lot. We spoke about how this is referencing a whole system of false religion. It also seems to be the headquarters for this final world ruling empire that will be on the earth right before the kingdom. It is, in fact, a counterfeit kingdom. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, you may notice that Satan tries to counterfeit everything God does, even the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, you have the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet, these three characters that each have these separate missions. The false prophet's job is to point and direct people to worship the beast, just like the spirit's job is to point people to, direct, to worship Jesus Christ, a total counterfeit. Yet we know this is very short-lived at this period now. In chapter 18, the destruction of Babylon, we looked at these groups of people. The kings and the merchants are singled out, to weep over the destruction of Babylon. And we spoke about this, very interesting. That is a political leader and a business leader, kings and merchants, united in their grief over the destruction of this world system that has such a grasp of control on the world. The earth dwellers weep and mourn over her destruction, and yet we saw at the end that heaven is called to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. Revelation 18:20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So now we move into chapter 19, and we see this scene of rejoicing in heaven. We had the call to rejoice just there at the end of 18, and now we move into heaven again, and we see this scene of rejoicing. And this is really happening right before the most single important event remaining in human history. In fact, You could argue that all of human history has really been leading up to this event. This is the dramatic climax of everything that is about to happen. It is full of drama and tension, and you can sense that by reading this book. And even in heaven, you can sense the anticipation of what is about to break forth from heaven onto the earth. Now, if you just think about how much the first coming impacted this world, the first coming, you could argue, changed absolutely everything. The impact of that one Jewish rabbi who was poor on this earth by this earth's standards. He never really did anything according to the world that would associate him with greatness. He didn't get buildings dedicated to him. There was no one giving him honors or degrees or Nobel prizes, no one dedicating books to him, not even writing his own books. In fact, he really only had three and a half years of public ministry when he was 
in Israel, never left the borders of Israel, never traveled, never saw the world, was never had global audiences at that time. He was hated by his own people, treated with disdain by the rulers of the world, and ultimately he died of shameful, humiliating, and criminal's death, strung up naked on a cross by the Roman Empire. Yet we know, as did so many people at that time, he changed everything. Many people were crucified under the Roman Empire. Thousands of them were crucified, died exactly the same way that Jesus died. So we ask ourselves, why was this different? Why is it today we're still sitting here worshipping Jesus Christ, whereas many other people who died and were probably much greater in the human sense than Jesus was, no one even remembers their names. There's no monuments to them. And quite simply, it's because of what we're reading in Revelation 19. It's because of who he was. He was the Lord who came to die for us. And because of that, that event changed the course of human history. No one has impacted human history like that man did, that Jewish rabbi. He gains followers every single day, still to this day, and he has done every single day for 2,000 years. People are added to his number. The words he spoke back then are the most read words in the world today. People have died to read those words. People travel for hours at a time to, to hear those words spoken. Millions upon millions of people across every tribe, tongue, and nation through every generation in history since love him and worship him. His impact is felt in every area of society. You can walk across the globe now and you'll find thousands of buildings dedicated to him in his honor. Fill most of them with people still singing praises to his name. The museums of this world are adorned with art, depicting scenes from his life. Entire symphonies have been composed to him. The scientific revolution begun as a way to discover his creative works. Politics, government, and law use his principles around the world today. Every discipline, I would say, that man has ever devised has felt the touch of the saviour of that great man at some point. And even to this day, millions upon millions have found salvation, freedom, liberation, meaning, purpose, love, beauty, safety, and a million other things by believing in his name. And every week, on Sunday morning, millions of people gather all around the world to sing praises to his name. That's why he's different in one way. It's so different. No other teacher, no other philosophy can compare ever comes close. And that was his first coming. Okay? His first coming, he came humbly. He had no form that anyone would desire. He lived and died in poverty at that moment. He was like a human. He hungered, he thirsted, he wept on this earth. Yet still, that's the impact he had. Now let me ask you, what do you think the impact will be at his second coming? When he comes in the full splendor of his glory and his majesty, he comes not as a humble servant, as a lamb who will die on the cross. He comes as a conquering king, as a warrior priest, the one who has the authority to judge, the one whose radiance shines like the sun, the one whose patience for evil has grown thin and is at an end. And this is the true king who will remove all unrighteousness from his presence. That is what his second coming will be. And this is what is about to happen now in the book of Revelation. And the anticipation is tangible in the storyline. And let me just say this. If you have not become acquainted with him at his first coming, and we're still in that period, really, the period between the second coming and the first coming, if you do not know him in his first coming, you do not want to meet him in his second coming. You need to make sure that you understand that. It will be too late by then when he comes as the king. 
You need to see him as the lamb first, which is why Revelation has this focus. Although we're leading up to this event we're reading about now where he is the king, so many times we've seen him referred to as the lamb that was slain in the center of the throne of God. Right up until this final moment, his mercy endures, but at this point when he comes, then it will be too late. So let's jump into Revelation chapter 19. He says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of the bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. After the vision, then, John has seen dealing with the destruction of Babylon for the last two chapters, he now hears again this voice, a great multitude in heaven. Most likely this is all the inhabitants of the heavenly realm at this time, the redeemed, the church, I believe, the angelic hosts of heaven. And what are they doing? They're praising God. In fact, this, this portion of scripture is often called the fourfold hallelujah because we get these four dramatic hallelujah proclamations. It's really one of the only times we have this word in the New Testament, actually. It's an old Hebrew word, and it means to praise God, and it is a command here. This is the heavenly anthem that rings out in praise to God. It's an emphatic declaration. Praise God, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These are things that belong to him and him alone. Let's look at them. Salvation. And we think we know what salvation means. I often think this. We think we know what it is to be saved, but I believe we understand it in such a single-minded and individual way. Whilst, of course, it is individual to us, there is much more to it than just our own personal salvation. He is the Redeemer, but he is not only the Redeemer of mankind, the Redeemer of souls, he is the Redeemer of the entire creation. We find this in the words of the Apostle Paul, where he makes this argument. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And when we see the King come, this is one of the things that he will accomplish. Redemption will spread to every corner of the globe and the creation in that way. Salvation belongs to him, and we will be redeemed in that full sense, finally, when the Lord returns, as we have it in our own personal sense, but also in the way that his kingdom manifests across the globe. Salvation belongs to him. What does it say in Acts 4.12? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven, given among men under heaven, by which people can be saved. And that's an interesting statement. This means nothing else can save you. There is salvation in no one else. That means no other religious system. Bear in mind, at this point in Revelation, we've just witnessed the destruction of all of these Babylonian systems. There's no philosophy in this world, in our age, no, not education. None of the promises of utopia from social justice movements, no economic models, no climate change activism, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Krishna, 
None of the emperors, none of the great men, none of the kings in this world, not Thor, Odin, not Gaia, not Zeus. It's not going to be found in the stars, in astrology, in Mother Earth, in mysticism, in the occult, not in science, not in rationalism, and most definitely not in yourself. This is the thing. No other name. This is why Jesus is called the name above all names. This is why I said that at one day, every knee will bow to that name. And everyone will understand this truth of what is being said here. Because as it says, glory and power belong to him. Not some glory, not some power. All glory and all power are his. Anyone else in this world who we may think displays even a glimpse of glory and power, it's not theirs. It's reflecting his if it's good, and if not, it's just corrupted and it will fade away. The Lord does not share his glory with another, except the Son in that respect. He is all-powerful. He is the mighty God. He is the conquering king, and this will be fully displayed at his second coming, the event that we are building up to study, and we will get fully into it next week, but we'll do these introductory parts now. You see, the world may mock him right now, the world doesn't see him as a conquering king. The world doesn't see him in his glory, in his splendor, in his majesty. They see him, really, as a, a fraud, claiming to be God, as just a man, as a teacher, as any of these things, someone who died a long time ago and his life really should have little impact on us today. That is what they do now. People mistake his patience and his grace and his mercy for weakness in this age. And he allows it because he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient with us but it is not weakness. All power belongs to him. And at this time in history, there will be no argument or mistaking that. All power belongs to him. Verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. Now we see why they are praising God. Why are we getting these hallelujahs resounding in the heavenlies? Because of his judgments. And this is something we don't often think about, is it? We'd say praise God for his love, for his mercy, as we should in all of those things. But here we see heaven ringing out with praise because of his judgments. Because finally, the corruption of the earth, the works of Satan, are done, are being dealt with, and they are being answered by the righteousness of God. So this, above all else, is how we should think of his judgments. If we are safe in the Lord, if we are in him, we know that his judgments don't come to us in that sense. We have no reason to fear them someone prayed there's no condemnation we don't face the judgment the wrath of God we're not destined for the wrath of God therefore we can give praise for his judgments because we know that it is his judgments that will one day make this earth fit for the kingdom and his righteous people that is what it is and this is what we've really been studying throughout the, the entire book of Revelation through the seals the trumpets and the bowls that is exactly what they are described to do it says they are true and they are righteous what does that mean that they are conducted in accordance with truth and that truth flows from him. And because he knows everything, he's omniscient, there is no mistake in his administration of justice, and he's not doing anything that he does not have the power or the authority to do. And he, no one is getting a bad deal at this time. It is all done in truth and justice. And like I said, this should not alarm us. In fact, we should join the chorus of praise that we find in heaven. We should long for this. We understand this principle even today in a broken world. Injustice must be answered with justice. That is ultimate. We even try and have that model represented in our courtrooms around the world today. When we see injustice, we want to see justice answered it. 
If you've ever seen a live courtroom scene, you know, sometimes they televise courtroom scenes, or even in a movie when they make them up based on real things, imagine someone's being prosecuted for a real vile crime, like a murder or an assault, something that, that's horrible that makes you, you can look at it and you know that's evil, that's sin, that's brokenness in this world. And then often they'll show, you know, one side of the court is packed with the family's victim, and you can see the distraught, the tears, the brokenness that sin causes in this world. It's a very visual representation of the brokenness of sin, the damage that sin does. And often you'll find when the jury stands up and they read the verdict, and if it's guilty and then the, the judge passes sentence, it's not unusual to see that side of the courtroom jump up and cheer and start hugging each other and crying and weeping with, you know, because justice has been served. We understand that principle, and so it should be. And that, in many ways, to me, is kind of like a small analogy of what we're seeing in the cosmic scale right here now. Babylon, who corrupted the earth, who murdered the saints all those years, has finally been judged, and we're now seeing the heavenly courtroom jump up and resound, hallelujah, four times with praise to the Lord. That's what we have going on here. We understand that. That is how it is. Verse 3, And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. So this is the second hallelujah here in verse 3. Smoke rises up. This is referring to the destruction of Babylon. The idea here is to indicate that the destruction of Babylon is permanent. Evil has had its day at this point, never to rise again on the face of the earth like that. This is the story of the Bible. You see these groups of people, the 24 elders, the four living creatures. Remember last time we met them in the book of Revelation, right back in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, the last time we were privy to see into the throne room of God. We saw these same people there, and they were doing pretty much the same thing, praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy. The 24 elders, we argued, represents the redeemed church, the living creatures of those high-ranking angels that attend the throne room of God. We're seeing their reaction again, and here we see that once again they're falling down in awe and adoration in worship to the one who sits on the throne. And I found this interesting. Make no mistake, the throne room of heaven is occupied. We talked about this when we first came into the throne room. However much man might not want it to be occupied, however much we might live in this world like it's not occupied, make no mistake, it is occupied, and one day the one who occupies it is going to send his son back to have a throne on this world too and all will be his. In Revelation chapter 4, we saw the elders. They were falling down, and that, that was the moment they were casting their crowns before him, and they were singing the song of redemption. Revelation 5, we saw that amazing scene where the lamb took the scroll, the only one who was worthy to open the seals, and again we see these elders falling down, singing and worshipping the Lord. In Revelation 7, we saw the great multitude who had been killed in the tribulation come to him, and again we see the elders fall down in worship. In Revelation 11, the declaration of the heavenlies declared that the kingdoms of this world are about to become the kingdom of Christ, and the elders again fall down in worship. And then here, finally, at the destruction of Babylon, once again we see them fall down in worship. And that's a lesson for us. These are redeemed people of some sort, obviously, whether you believe that they're the church like I've argued that they are or not. They sing the song of redemption as only a redeemed person can in that respect. This should teach us about what we should be doing in this world. Really the only correct response to the Lord, particularly when you see into his throne room in this intimate way, is to worship him, to fall down 
and worship. Redeemed people are a people who are called out of this world, set apart to be a worshipping people. We worship and praise the Almighty. That is what should characterise us. And this is a hard question. Ask, ask yourself now personally, does that characterise you? Are we a people of praise? Are we a people of worship, not here on Sundays, throughout every time that we are part of the kingdom, part of the church, rather, and as we look forward to that coming kingdom? The elders fall in worship. You see, why do they do this? Because as we've said throughout this book so many times, he is worthy of worship. That is it, really. He is the only true king. He's the only righteous and true judge, as we've seen here. He's the only completely moral and perfect being that ever was or ever will be. And we are called his sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family because he loves us. That's why we worship him. That's why we follow him. That's why we serve him. Not out, not out of some blind obedience to a power that we fear, but as recognizing someone who is almighty, has all glory, has all power, but has also proved his love for us by dying for us on a cross. That's why we worship him. Verse 5, And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So another voice now came from the throne, another call to praise for his bondservants. And this reminds me very much of the call that we get in Psalm 135, which says, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. The sound of many waters. He hears this final voice now. It's described as the sound of many waters, as mighty peals of thunder, as we've heard a few times throughout this book. And if you've ever heard how loud thunder can be, you know, sometimes when you hear like a crack of thunder and it echoes across the sky, and probably in our country, we, our storms are pretty tame compared to how that can be in many, many parts of the world. It's both terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. My, my kids hear thunder, you know, they get scared, rightly so. This is the idea that we have here of how loud this voice is. If you could kind of imagine, imagine just in a human sense, every stadium on this earth filled to capacity, every musician, every music, musical instrument you could get, times it by 10,000,000 times, myriads upon myriads, the Bible says. Add into that all of the heavenly beings praising God at the same time. And then at this same moment, everything cries forth, hallelujah. Imagine the sound that that would be. I think the words that he's got here, the mighty peals of thunder, he's just trying to express what it is he's just heard. At the same time, they all give that shout, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now remember at this time on earth in Revelation, Satan, the beast and his followers are trying to make that final desperate attempt to have their time as king, to try and really be what Satan always wanted to be, receive worship as himself. And as they are gathering together all of the armies of man in preparation for Armageddon for the second coming, this resounding shout echoes forth from the heavenlies. And I'd imagine that on the spiritual realm, those thunderous hallelujah, cry, hallelujah cries are felt by Satan and all of his unclean followers at this time, almost warning them that their time is very short and they know Christ is coming soon. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come 
and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So now we change gears slightly into this passage of scripture here. The scene changes from one of glory and power and majesty to one of unbridled rejoicing and gladness. And in the Jewish mindset, a wedding is the greatest celebration you can really get. They even had restrictions where you could lay aside the commandments if it was ordered to celebrate a wedding. It was nothing could stop weddings. They were supposed to be the, the greatest joy. And here we have the marriage of the Lamb. This is not just like a royal wedding. Think of all the fanfare that goes on over a royal wedding. This is the wedding of, the, wedding of eternity, basically. This is, there's no wedding that's going to match this. Now, I want to understand this a little bit deeper. The marriage of the Lamb has come. You see, the imagery of marriage is used to teach us about Christ, about this particular event here, in fact, that we're reading about in Revelation. You see, even Christian marriage today is actually just meant to point us towards this greater truth that we have here being expressed in Revelation 19. The Apostle Paul laid this out for us. He says, husbands, love your wives. But why? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, this is Ephesians 5, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy, she would be holy and blameless. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then look how Paul ends this teaching. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marriage in many ways is supposed to be a lived out theological truth that actually points us towards the greater truth of what it means for Christ and his church to be married and become one flesh of that intimate. That's the whole point of the one flesh teaching that we have. Never really talked about, we usually speak it in the human sense because that's the world we operate in in many ways, but it teaches this bigger truth. Christ is the groom, the church is described as the bride. Now we can understand this even by analogy though. Think of a person who is engaged. You've ever met a, a, a woman or someone who's engaged? They're waiting for that wedding. They spend that time in expectation, in preparation, in planning. Everything really becomes about the wedding, doesn't it? It kind of becomes all-consuming to the point that it's annoying for everyone else around them, but that is generally how it goes. Now, this is how it is to be for the Christian, remember. That is just a shadow, a type pointing towards the greater reality here. This is how the Christian should live his life in anticipation of this coming day that we're reading about in Revelation 19. Our lives should be spent preparing for it, investing into it. It should really consume our thoughts and our actions that we don't often think of anything else of this day except this day, this coming wedding day that we have with the Lord in that sense. And imagine this also, how crushing it would be that during this engagement period for one partner to discover that the other is really showing no interest in these things. In fact, that the other is in fact more interested in someone else, some other thing, or things that have nothing to do with your future together. That is what it is like when we walk away from the Lord. That is what it is like when we are out of fellowship with the Lord, when we show little interest for the things of the Lord. That is the analogy that we are given in Scripture. We are in the betrothal period. We are waiting for this, the marriage supper, the marriage of the Lamb, but yet... Quite often we show little interest in preparing, anticipating, being excited about or waiting for that coming day. This is why I believe we need to put this actual portion of Scripture, Revelation 19, at the forefront of our Christian faith. 
We don't study the book of Revelation much, therefore I think we don't actually take these truths to heart too often. Now, we can also say this, although you may be here and you're not married, you may not have that earthly type right now, that in no way means that you cannot fully grasp the reality of which it is pointing to, of which you are a part if you're in the body of Christ because you are already part of the bride of Christ. And that is ultimately where we get to. In fact, the Apostle Paul even makes the argument, you may be more useful for service in that situation. That is the situation that we have here. But it goes deeper than this. There are, in fact, a number of parallels between the marriage supper, the marriage and the marriage supper, that are taken from the Jewish wedding principles. Christ, of course, was born to Jewish lineage. The Bible was written by Jews. You find Jewish imagery all over and all throughout the Bible. And the customs of a Jewish wedding are laid out for us in the scripture and I want to go through a few of these now because they're fascinating I find them fascinating because they not only map out our Christian faith for us they in fact map out human history for us in many ways too I shared with you earlier that in many many Jewish traditions they consider the Torah to be a marriage contract and the book of Revelation seems to make that same argument too not Jehovah but for the lamb we'll look at that a little bit now so there are a number of steps in a Jewish wedding ancient Jewish wedding. Obviously, over years, you'll find there's many things that have been added in many traditions. I'm stripping this down to really just the main core ones. The first stage would be the betrothal. The idea of this back in these days, and well, actually, only for the last couple of centuries has this changed, it would be the job of the father to arrange a prospective bride, to arrange marriage. It would usually be different families within a small community. The father would arrange that, and it would involve the prospective groom paying a purchase price to the family of the bride. That's just how it was, because you're taking someone from their family in agrarian cultures, you lose someone in your family, it means your economic status is going to go down, your work's going to go down. So the idea was, as someone else is taking someone to be with their family, you'd pay and make a dowry, they call it whatever it was, in that family. That was the first stage. And then when that is done, those two people are considered betrothed. They are engaged, as we would say, together. Even if they've never met, even if it's going to be years before the marriage, these sorts of things, that covenant was made. That's what they call it. That is the covenant. That was the first stage. And then the second stage, usually dealing with older people at this stage, the groom would then have the responsibility of preparing a place for him and his bride to live. And often in these places, you couldn't just go up the street and go to the estate agent and buy a, a property that was available. It didn't work like that. Usually, you would either have a place that was added on to your, to your father's house or to your family house, like an upstairs or, or something like that. And that was the idea. And you would prepare that. However, at this time, you were separated from the one you were engaged to. It was a time of separation. And the idea also is that during that time, you prove your faithfulness to each other. You don't wander off, you don't do other things, you are saving yourself and looking forward to that day. This could usually, it was done about a year before in most times, depending on when the covenant was signed. The third stage of a Jewish wedding was the fetching of the bride. At a certain point, which was unknown to the bride, the father would tell the groom to go and receive his bride. And this is what they would call it a bridal, like a groom's procession, a bridal procession. And you actually see some of this in the scriptures. Jesus uses this analogy in one of his parables. And you see him, under, he obviously understood this principle here. At that point, the groom would be told to go and get his bride. Often you'd have someone proclaiming or they'd have a watchman on the walls in the city of the bride and she would shout when she sees him coming. And then the fourth section was the wedding ceremony. 
This would take place in the father's house, usually the father of the groom, and it was an intimate event. It was usually closed. It wasn't like the whole town would be involved at this event. It was usually direct family and one or two witnesses. That was how it was for the ceremony. And then the fifth and final stage, really, was the wedding feast. It's kind of similar to what we have today, don't we? People have smaller ceremonies, and then they open up the, the party afterwards to much more people. Same kind of principle. This is just what they had. The wedding feast is much more public. It was the grand celebration of the bride and groom beginning their new life together, much like we read about in John chapter 2, the first event Jesus ever did a miracle at, in fact, was one of these wedding feasts. They are the stages of a Jewish wedding. And now let me apply this to the Bible and to history too. So when was that purchase price paid? and the covenant signed, that first step. This actually happened 2,000 years ago. The marriage of the Lamb, that covenant was signed 2,000 years ago. The prospective groom, we call him the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he came to this earth at the behest of his father, and he paid that price, the purchase price for the bride. Acts 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, that's the bride of Christ, which he has purchased with his own blood. The purchase price was the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. This is actually wedding language that we're reading about here in many ways that we miss often. And when was the covenant signed? The same time, in fact. Matthew 26, 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying... Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We call it the new covenant. That's your marriage covenant. That was what secured you as part of the body of Christ. That's how you enter in to become one of the bride of Christ. Whenever you place your faith in Christ, you enter into that covenant. And therefore, this glorious future that we're reading about in Revelation becomes yours. That's how it works. Now, that's the first stage. Now, we should see the second stage. After that, throughout biblical history, what was the second stage? After the covenant is signed, the groom would leave, return home, and start preparing things. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples he was going to do. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. After he signed the covenant, he went back, he ascended back to his father in heaven, and that is really the stage that we are in now, the waiting stage in between. He does that until he comes. Now, in that time, we are called to work. Think of the bride during that separation period. Although they're engaged, she's working, waiting, watching for his appearing. Just as the bride watches for the arrival of the bridegroom, we are told consistently and frequently in the scriptures to watch and wait and live in the expectation of the coming of Jesus. It's the same analogy that we have going on here. Now, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation in the first century, those first three steps have already been fulfilled. The covenant has been signed, Jesus has ascended, and we are in that waiting stage now. So the next stage is what? The collecting of the bride. The groom coming back to collect his bride. And we actually have this for us written in Scripture too. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. 
Okay, people call this by many different names, the rapture, the, the second coming. It's technically, this is the groom fetching the bride in preparation for the marriage of the Lamb. That's what it is. In chapter 19 of Revelation that we've just read, and as we've argued previously, I believe that stage has already happened. For us now, it hasn't happened. We're still waiting for that. But by the time we get to what John is writing about in Revelation 19, the bride has already been collected, and now we are reading about the final fourth stage here, the wedding ceremony that takes place in Revelation 19. This is what we read about. It takes place in heaven just before the return of Christ. So that leaves only one more thing, the wedding feast that happens after the ceremony. And if you learn about the kingdom in the Old Testament, one thing that you will find about the beginning of the kingdom on this earth when Christ comes is that it will begin with a feast. Many times the Old Testament prophets make that argument. It will be a feast on the mountain of God. The point is there, this is the fulfillment, the consummation of the marriage of the Lamb, the church, the bride to Christ. And this is the celebration where the whole earth is invited at this time, every redeemed soul from every age in that kingdom area, to share in the joy of this new era of history that we're moving into. So you see, you can actually go through the whole of human history and map it out around this Jewish wedding principle. It's quite amazing, really. Verse 8, back in Revelation now. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are called the wedding garments. A big theme throughout Scripture too, the righteous acts of the saints. How do we know if they're righteous? Basically, this is strongly implying that the, righteous, the judgment of Jesus Christ on his saints, as in our works, has already happened at this point. All those works that are not righteous, that have been burned up, the wood, hay, stubble, are gone at this point, and we are left in that beautiful, clean, righteous robes that we have at this time. Verse 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And again, we have another beatitude here, another blessed, another how happy are these people who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe this is the redeemed Church age saints, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, all the different groups of people who will be invited to this amazing event. Then the idea is they will all be there to share in the joy of the bride and groom. The scene that we have here being expressed is one of unparalleled joy, happiness, gladness, praise, glory, wonder, intimacy, the full fulfillment of fellowship, family, and satisfaction that we can only really crave for in this world. In fact, if you think about it, all of those things are things that people long for in this broken world. How many times do you read about problems coming from these sorts of issues, but it's a corruption? People long for them, they know they should experience it, but they don't know how to get to that. It's out of their reach in many ways. In Christ, as a member of his body, as a member of his, as a part of the bride of Christ, who will one day have that union where you become one flesh with him, all of these things will be experienced in their purest and fullest forms. That is the future. That is part of the inheritance that awaits those who come to him. And it's almost really too wonderful for our comprehension, I believe, at this time. All we know is just the brokenness of this world, yet sometimes in fellowship, in family, we glimpse it. The beauty of creation, we can glimpse what a restored earth will be like, maybe, to a certain degree, but we should still be longing for its arrival, longing for that time where Babylon and its influence is completely removed, which is why heaven resounds with four hallelujahs when this happens. And then we have the marriage of the Lamb. It's so good, you can't, it's too, too good to really believe. This is why it ends with that final pronouncement there in the end of verse, verse 9. Look at it. And he said to me, these are true words of God. 
It's almost like after expressing everything that's happening here, he almost has to say, it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. I can assure you it will take place. Why? Because God, the Almighty, who reigns, the one who has all glory and power belonging to him, he has said so. And we know that not one word of all his good promise will fail. The final consummation of all things under his reign will be accomplished. And this is a point where we can ask ourselves, if you have not listened to the plea of the bridegroom, of the coming king, of the lamb that was slain, of the judge who will one day judge in truth and righteousness, and you have not accepted his offer of forgiveness, his offer of being part of this wonderful future, the question you must ask yourself is why not? How do we do this? We've heard it many times. You can never hurt to hear it again. You do this by confessing your sins, by acknowledging that he died in your place, that by putting your faith in him as saviour and as Lord, you will become born again and a son of the kingdom. And you can ask yourself, do you think that anything that you are clinging to in this world that is keeping you from doing that will compare to this future that Christ has arranged for you? Do you think that you could maybe reign better than him in your own life? Do you know better? No. Do you think that anyone will love you more than he will? No. The only thing really left to do is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then join in the multitude of the heavenly chorus that are praising him and shouting hallelujah. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.